0: Section 1 of Our National Parks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Joseph B. Campo. Our National Parks by John Muir. Chapter 1, Part 1. The Wild Parks and Forest Reservations of the West quoted poem keep not standing fixed and rooted, briskly venture, briskly roam head in hand, where'er thou foot it and stout heart are still at home in each land the sun does visit, we are gay, whate'er betide to give room for wandering is it that the world was made so wide." End of quoted poem. The tendency nowadays to wander in wildernesses is delightful to see. Thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home, that wilderness is a necessity, and that mountain parks and reservations are useful, not only as fountains of timber and irrigating rivers, but as fountains of life. Awakening from the stupefying effects of the vice of over-industry and the deadly apathy of luxury, they are trying, as best they can, to mix and enrich their own little ongoings with those of nature, and to get rid of rust and disease. Briskly venturing and roaming, some are washing off sins and cobweb cares of the devils, spinning in all day storms on mountains, sauntering in Rossini pine woods or in Gentian meadows, brushing through chaparral, bending down and parting sweet, flowery sprays, tracing rivers to their sources, getting in touch with the nerves of Mother Earth jumping from rock to rock, feeling the life of them, learning the songs of them, panting in whole-souled exercise, and rejoicing in deep, long-drawn breaths of pure wildness. This is fine and natural and full of promise. So also is the growing interest in the care and preservation of forests and wild places in general, and in the half-wild parks and gardens of towns. Even the scenery habit in its most artificial forms, mixed with spectacles, silliness, and kodaks, its devotees arrayed more gorgeously than scarlet tanagers, frightening the wild game with red umbrellas, even this is encouraging, and may well be regarded as a hopeful sign of the times all the western mountains are still rich in wildness and by means of good roads are being brought nearer to civilization every year to the sane and free it will hardly seem necessary to cross the continent in search of wild beauty however easy the way for they find it in abundance wherever they chance to be like thoreau They see forests in orchards and patches of huckleberry brush, and oceans in ponds and drops of dew. Few in these hot, dim, strenuous times are quite sane or free, choked with care like clocks full of dust, laboriously doing so much good and making so much money or so little They are no longer good for themselves. When, like a merchant taking a list of his goods, we take stock of our wildness, we are glad to see how much of even the most destructible kind is still unspoiled. Looking at our continent as scenery when it was all wild, lying between beautiful seas, the starry sky above it, the starry rocks beneath it, To compare its sides, the east and the west, would be like comparing the sides of a rainbow. But it is no longer equally beautiful. The rainbows of today are, I suppose, as bright as those that first spanned the sky, and some of our landscapes are growing more beautiful from year to year, notwithstanding the clearing, trampling work of civilization. New plants and animals are enriching woods and gardens, and many landscapes wholly new with divine sculpture and architecture are just now coming to the light of day as the mantling folds of creative glaciers are being withdrawn and life in a thousand cheerful, beautiful forms is pushing into them, and newborn rivers are beginning to sing and shine in them. The old rivers, too, are growing longer, like healthy trees, gaining new branches and lakes as their residual glaciers at their highest sources on the mountains recede, while the root-like branches in the flat deltas are at the same time spreading farther and wider into the seas and making new lands. Under the control of the vast, mysterious forces of the interior of the earth, all the continents and islands are slowly rising or sinking. Most of the mountains are diminishing in size under the wearing action of the weather, though a few are increasing in height and girth, especially the volcanic ones, as fresh floods of molten rocks are piled, on their summits and spread in successive layers like the wood rings of trees on their sides. New mountains also are being created from time to time as islands in lakes and seas or as subordinate cones on the slopes of old ones, thus in some measure balancing the waste of old beauty with new. Man, too, is making many far-reaching changes. This most influential half-animal, half-angel, is rapidly multiplying and spreading, covering the seas and lakes with ships, the land with huts, hotels, cathedrals, and clustered city shops and homes, so that soon, it would seem, we may have to go farther than Nansen To find a good, sound solitude. None of nature's landscapes are ugly, so long as they are wild, and much, we can say comfortingly, must always be in great part wild, particularly the sea and the sky, the floods of light from the stars, and the warm, unspoilable heart of the earth, infinitely beautiful, though only dimly visible to the eye of imagination the geysers too spouting from the hot underworld the steady long-lasting glaciers on the mountains obedient only to the sun yosemite domes and the tremendous grandeur of rocky canyons and mountains in general these must always be wild for man can change them and mar them hardly more than can the butterflies that hover above them. But the continent's outer beauty is fast passing away, especially the plant part of it, the most destructible and most universally charming of all. Only thirty years ago, the great Central Valley of California five hundred miles long and fifty miles wide, was one bed of golden and purple flowers. Now it is plowed and pastured out of existence, gone forever, scarce a memory of it left in fence corners and along the bluffs of the streams. The gardens of the Sierra also, and the noble forests in both the reserved and unreserved portions, are sadly hacked and trampled, notwithstanding the ruggedness of the topography, all excepting those of the parks, guarded by a few soldiers. In the noblest forests of the world, the ground, once divinely beautiful, is desolate and repulsive, like a face ravaged by disease. This is true also of many other Pacific coast and Rocky Mountain valleys and forests. The same fate, sooner or later, is awaiting them all, unless awakening public opinion comes forward to stop it. Even the great deserts in Arizona, Nevada, Utah, and New Mexico, which offer so little to attract settlers and which a few years ago pioneers were afraid of, as places of desolation and death, are now taken as pastures, at the rate of one or two square miles per cow. And, of course, their plant treasures are passing away, the delicate abronias, phloxes, gillias, etc. Only a few of the bitter, thorny, unbiteable shrubs are left, and the sturdy cactuses that defend themselves with bayonets and spears most of the wild plant wealth of the east also has vanished gone into dusty history only vestiges of its glorious prairie and woodland wealth remain to bless humanity in boggy rocky unplowable places fortunately some of these are purely wild and go far to keep nature's love visible. White water lilies with rootstocks deep and safe in mud still send up every summer a milky way of starry, fragrant flowers around a thousand lakes, and many a tuft of wild grass waves its panicles on mossy rocks beyond reach of trampling feet, in company with saxifrages, bluebells, and ferns. Even in the midst of farmers' fields, precious sphagnum bogs, too soft for the feet of cattle, are preserved with their charming plants unchanged. Chiogenes, Andromeda, Calmia, Linnea, Arethusa, etc. Calypso borealis still hides in the arborvita swamps of Canada. And away to the southward, there are a few unspoiled swamps, big ones, where miasma, snakes, and alligators, like guardian angels, defend their treasures and keep them as pure as paradise. And, beside a that and a that, the east is blessed with good winters and blossoming clouds that shed white flowers over all the land covering every scar and making the saddest landscape divine at least once a year the most extensive least spoiled and most unspoilable of the gardens of the continent are the vast tundras of alaska in summer they extend smooth even undulating continuous beds of flowers and leaves from about latitude 62 degrees to the shores of the Arctic Ocean. And in winter, sheets of snowflowers make all the country shine, one mass of white radiance, like a star. Nor are these Arctic plant people the pitiful frost-pinched unfortunates they are guessed to be by those who have never seen them. Though lowly in stature, keeping near the frozen ground as if loving it they are bright and cheery and speak nature's love as plainly as their big relatives of the south tenderly happed and tucked in beneath downy snow to sleep through the long white winter they make haste to bloom in the spring without trying to grow tall though some rise high enough to ripple and wave in the wind and display masses of color yellow purple and blue so rich that they look like beds of rainbows and are visible miles and miles away as early as june one may find the showy geum glacial in flower and the dwarf willows putting forth myriads of fuzzy catkins to be followed quickly, especially on the drier ground, by Mertensia, Eritracheum, Polymonium, Oxytropis, Astragalus, Latherus, Lupinus, Myosotis, Dodecathion, Arnica, Chrysanthemum, Nardosmia, Sosoria, Senecio, Origeron, Matricaria, Caltha, Valeriana, Stellaria, Tophilia, Polygonum, Papaver, Phlox, Likeness, Chiranthus, Linnea, and a host of Dravis, Saxifragus, and heathwarts, with bright stars and bells, in glorious profusion, particularly Cassiope, Andromeda, Ledum, Pyrola, and Vaccinium. Cassiope, the most abundant and beautiful of them all. Many grasses also grow here and wave fine purple spikes and panicles over the other flowers. Poa, Aera, Calamagrostis, Alopecurus, Trisetum, Elimus, Festuca, Glyceria, etc. Even ferns are found thus far north, carefully and comfortably unrolling their precious fronds, Aspidium, Cystopteris, and Woodsia, all growing on a sumptuous bed of mosses and lichens. Not the scaly lichens seen on rails and trees and fallen logs to the southward, but massive, round-headed, finely-colored plants like corals, wonderfully beautiful, worth going round the world to see. I should like to mention all the plant friends I found in a summer's wanderings in this cool reserve, but I fear few would care to read their names although everybody, I am sure, would love them could they see them blooming and rejoicing at home. On my last visit to the region about Kutsebu Sound, near the middle of September 1881, the weather was so fine and mellow that it suggested the Indian summer of the eastern states. The winds were hushed, the tundra glowed in creamy golden sunshine, and the colors of the ripe foliage of the heathworts, willows, and birch, red, purple, and yellow, in pure bright tones, were enriched with those of berries, which were scattered everywhere, as if they had been showered from the clouds like hail. When I was back a mile or two from the shore, reveling in this color glory, and thinking how fine it would be could I cut a square of the tundra sod of conventional picture size, frame it, and hang it among the paintings on my study walls at home, saying to myself, Such a nature painting taken at random from any part of the thousand-mile bog would make the other pictures look dim and coarse. I heard Mary shouting, and, looking round, saw a band of Eskimos, men, women, and children, loose and hairy like wild animals, running towards me. I could not guess at first what they were seeking, for they seldom leave the shore. But soon they told me, as they threw themselves down, sprawling and laughing, on the mellow bog, and began to feast on the berries. A lively picture they made, and a pleasant one, as they frightened the worrying ptarmigans and surprised their oily stomachs with the beautiful acid berries of many kinds, and filled seal-skin bags with them to carry away for festive days in winter. Nowhere else on my travels have I seen so much warm-blooded rejoicing life as in this grand Arctic reservation by so many regarded as desolate. Not only are there whales in abundance along the shores, and innumerable seals, walruses, and white bears, but on the tundras, great herds of fat reindeer and wild sheep, foxes, hares, mice, piping marmots, and birds. Perhaps more birds are born here than in any other region of equal extent on the continent. Not only do strong-winged hawks, eagles, and waterfowl, to whom the length of the continent is merely a pleasant excursion, come up here every summer in great numbers, but also many short-winged warblers, thrushes, and finches, repairing hither to rear their young in safety, reinforce the plant bloom with their plumage, and sweeten the wilderness with song. Flying all the way, some of them, from Florida, Mexico, and Central America. In coming north, they are coming home, for they were born here, and they go south only to spend the winter months, as New Englanders go to Florida. Sweet voiced troubadours, they sing in orange groves and vine clad magnolia woods in winter, in thickets of dwarf birch and alder in summer and sing and chatter more or less all the way back and forth, keeping the whole country glad. Oftentimes, in New England, just as the last snow patches are melting, and the sap in the maples begins to flow, the blessed wanderers may be heard about orchards and the edges of fields, where they have stopped to glean a scanty meal, not tarrying long, knowing they have far to go. Tracing the footsteps of spring, they arrive in their tundra homes in June or July, and set out on their return journey in September, or as soon as their families are able to fly well. This is nature's own reservation, and every lover of wildness will rejoice with me that, by kindly frost, it is so well defended. THE DISCOVERY LATELY MADE THAT IT IS SPRINKLED WITH GOLD MAY CAUSE SOME ALARM, FOR THE STRANGELY EXCITING STUFF MAKES THE TIMID BOLD ENOUGH FOR ANYTHING, AND THE LAZY DESTRUCTIVELY INDUSTRIOUS. THOUSANDS, AT LEAST HALF-INSANE, ARE NOW PUSHING THEIR WAY INTO IT, SOME BY THE SOUTHERN PASSES OVER THE MOUNTAINS, PERCHANCE THE FIRST MOUNTAINS THEY HAVE EVER SEEN sprawling struggling gasping for breath as laden with awkward merciless burdens of provisions and tools they climb over rough-angled boulders and cross thin miry bogs some are going by the mountains and rivers to the eastward through canada tracing the old romantic ways of the hudson bay traders others by bering sea and the yukon sailing all the way, getting glimpses, perhaps, of the famous fur seals, the ice floes, and the innumerable islands and bars of the Great Alaska River. In spite of frowning hardships and the frozen ground, the Klondike gold will increase the crusading crowds for years to come, but comparatively little harm will be done. Holes will be burned and dug into the hard ground here and there, and into the quartz-ribbed mountains and hills. Ragged towns like beaver and muskrat villages will be built, and mills and locomotives will make rumbling, screeching, disenchanting noises. But the miner's pick will not be followed far by the plow. At least, not until nature is ready to unlock the frozen soil beds with her slow-turning climate key. On the other hand, the roads of the pioneer miners will lead many a lover of wildness into the heart of the reserve, who, without them, would never see it. In the meantime, The wildest health and pleasure grounds accessible and available to tourists seeking escape from care and dust and early death are the parks and reservations of the West. Footnote 1. There are now, in 1909, 12 parks and 150 forest reservations, besides 20 national monuments. See Appendix. There are four national parks, the Yellowstone, Yosemite, General Grant, and Sequoia, all within easy reach, and 30 forest reservations, a magnificent realm of woods, most of which by railroads and trails and open ridges is also fairly accessible, not only to the determined traveler rejoicing in difficulties, but to those may their tribe increase, who, not tired, not sick, just naturally take wing every summer in search of wildness. The forty million acres of these reserves are in the main unspoiled as yet, though sadly wasted and threatened on their more open margins by the axe and fire of the lumberman and prospector, and by hoofed locusts, which, like the winged ones, devour every leaf within reach while the shepherds and owners set fires with the intention of making a blade of grass grow in the place of every tree but with the result of killing both the grass and the trees in the million acre black hills reserve of south dakota the easternmost of the great forest reserves made for the sake of the farmers and miners there are delightful, reviving, sauntering grounds in open parks of yellow pine, planted well apart, allowing plenty of sunshine to warm the ground. This tree is one of the most variable and most widely distributed of American pines. It grows sturdily on all kinds of soil and rocks, and, protected by a mail of thick bark, defies frost and fire and disease alike, daring every danger in firm, calm beauty and strength. It occurs here, mostly on the outer hills and slopes, where no other tree can grow. The ground beneath it is yellow most of the summer, with showy withia, arnica, aplopapus, solidago, and other sun-loving plants, which, though they form no heavy, entangling growth, yet give abundance of color and make all the woods a garden beyond the yellow pine woods there lies a world of rocks of wildest architecture broken splintery and spiky not very high but the strangest in form and style of grouping imaginable countless towers and spires pinnacles and slender domed columns are crowded together and feathered with sharp-pointed engelmann spruces making curiously mixed forests half trees half rocks level gardens here and there in the midst of them offer charming surprises and so do the many small lakes with lilies on their meadowy borders and bluebells anemones daisies castellellas comandras etc together forming landscapes delightfully novel and made still wilder by many interesting animals—elk, deer, beavers, wolves, squirrels, and birds. Not very long ago, this was the richest of all the Red Man's hunting grounds hereabout. After the season's buffalo hunts were over, as described by Parkman, who, with a picturesque cavalcade of Sioux savages— passed through these famous hills in 1846, every winter deficiency was here made good, and hunger was unknown until, in spite of most determined, fighting, killing opposition, the white gold hunters entered the fat game reserve and spoiled it. The Indians are dead now, and so are most of the hardly less striking free trappers of the early romantic Rocky Mountain Times. Arrows, bullets, scalping knives need no longer be feared, and all the wilderness is peacefully open. The Rocky Mountain Reserves are the Teton, Yellowstone, Lewis and Clark, Bitterroot, Priest River, and Flathead, comprehending more than 12 million acres of mostly unclaimed, rough, forest-covered mountains, in which the great rivers of the country take their rise the commonest tree in most of them is the brave indomitable and altogether admirable pinus contorta widely distributed in all kinds of climate and soil growing cheerily in frosty alaska breathing the damp salt air of the sea as well as the dry biting blasts of the arctic interior and making itself at home on the most dangerous, flame-swept slopes and bridges of the Rocky Mountains, in immeasurable abundance and variety of forms. Thousands of acres of this species are destroyed by running fires nearly every summer, but a new growth springs quickly from the ashes. It is generally small and yields few saw logs of commercial value, but it is of incalculable importance to the farmer and miner, supplying fencing, mine timbers, and firewood, holding the porous soil on steep slopes, preventing landslips and avalanches, and giving kindly nourishing shelter to animals and the widely outspread sources of the life-giving rivers. The other trees are mostly spruce, mountain pine, cedar juniper larch and balsam fir some of them especially on the western slopes of the mountains attaining grand size and furnishing abundance of fine timber perhaps the least known of all this grand group of reserves is the bitter root of more than four million acres it is the wildest shaggiest block of forest wildness in the Rocky Mountains, full of happy, healthy, storm-loving trees, full of streams that dance and sing in glorious array, and full of nature's animals, elk, deer, wild sheep, bears, cats, and innumerable smaller people. In calm Indian summer, when the heavy winds are hushed, the vast forests covering hill and dale, rising and falling over the rough topography and vanishing in the distance, seem lifeless. No moving thing is seen as we climb the peaks, and only the low, mellow murmur of falling water is heard, which seems to thicken the silence. Nevertheless, How many hearts with warm red blood in them are beating under cover of the woods, and how many teeth and eyes are shining? A multitude of animal people, intimately related to us, but of whose lives we know almost nothing, are as busy about their own affairs as we are about ours. Beavers are building and mending dams and huts for winter and storing them with food, bears are studying winter quarters as they stand thoughtful in open spaces, while the gentle breeze ruffles the long hair on their backs. Elk and deer, assembling on the heights, are considering cold pastures where they will be farthest away from the wolves. Squirrels and marmots are busily laying up provisions and lining their nests against coming frost and snow foreseen and countless thousands of birds are forming parties and gathering their young about them for flight to the southlands. While butterflies and bees, apparently with no thought of hard times to come, are hovering above the late blooming goldenrods, and with countless other insect folk, are dancing and humming right merrily in the sunbeams and shaking all the air into music. Wander here a whole summer, if you can. Thousands of God's wild blessings will search you and soak you as if you were a sponge, and the big days will go by uncounted. If you are business-tangled and so burdened with duty that only weeks can be got out of the heavy-laden year, then go to the Flathead Reserve, for it is easily and quickly reached by the great northern railroad get off the track at belton station and in a few minutes you will find yourself in the midst of what you are sure to say is the best care-killing scenery on the continent beautiful lakes derived straight from glaciers lofty mountains steeped in lovely nemophila blue skies and clad with forests and glaciers mossy, ferny waterfalls in their hollows, nameless and numberless, and meadowy gardens abounding in the best of everything. When you are calm enough for discriminating observation, you will find the king of the larches, one of the best of the western giants, beautiful, picturesque, and regal in port, easily the grandest of all the larches in the world. It grows to a height of one hundred and fifty to two hundred feet with a diameter at the ground of five to eight feet throwing out its branches into the light as no other tree does to those who before have seen only the european larch or the lyall species of the eastern rocky mountains or the little tamarack or hackmatack of the eastern states in canada this western king must be a revelation associated with this grand tree in the making of the flathead forests is the large and beautiful mountain pine or western white pine pinus monticola the invincible contorta or lodgepole pine and spruce and cedar the forest floor is covered with the richest beds of Linnea borealis i ever saw thick fragrant carpets, enriched with shining mosses here and there, and with clintonia, pyrola, moneses, and vaccinium, weaving hundred-mile beds of bloom that would have made blessed old Linnaeus weep for joy. Lake MacDonald, full of brisk trout, is in the heart of this forest, and Avalanche Lake is ten miles above MacDonald at the feet of a group of glacier-laden mountains. Give a month, at least, to this precious reserve. The time will not be taken from the sum of your life. Instead of shortening, it will indefinitely lengthen it and make you truly immortal. Nevermore will time seem short or long, and cares will never again fall heavily on you, but gently and kindly as gifts from heaven. End of section 1